Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Can We Be Heroes, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in May 2015. In our first story, Janelle Bowers tells of the first time she had to assist in transporting a corpse. I believe that we can all be heroes and that we are in our lives at all times. We're constantly presented with these situations that take tremendous courage for us to overcome and, and we take them on and we conquer them. Now, I've never really thought of myself as a courageous person. As a little kid, I was really skinny and I was always the new kid and I was really shy and awkward, but I had this really tough single mom who gave me this fire in my belly, especially when I was really scared. So when I was about 18 and I was just out of high school, I somewhere along the lines thought, decided I was going to be really tough. I like shaved my head and I got my first tattoo and I had this really punk rock boyfriend and we were like the punk rock couple. And he had an uncle who was the general manager of a removal service. Now, that sounds vague and it's vague for a reason because what they did was pick up dead bodies and do other various death-related things for mortuaries and coroner's offices. And, well, that summer I happened to need a job. I had, I had just walked out of my job where I sold shoes at Macy's. And, and Myron, John's uncle, he, he needed an office manager. Now, I didn't really know how to look for a job, and, but I, I was pretty smart, and I knew how to type, and I, I could answer a phone, and... Well, Myron, he liked me, and he knew me, and I think he figured he could pay me a lot less than someone who was older, so, so I got the job. Um, so the summer after I graduated high school, I started working as the office manager of a mortuary removal service. Uh, at first, I, I answered phones, and I did books, and I dispatched death calls as they came in. Pretty soon, I started to do death certificates, and I was really good at them. Um... And then I started to kind of take over some of the responsibilities of this, this mortuary answering service that we had. Um, and Myron started to kind of realize there wasn't a whole lot he could throw at me that I, I couldn't handle. And he was getting older, he had rheumatoid arthritis, and he really, he needed a break from the demands of running this particular business. So the business was housed in this row of like warehouses. And so there was my office in one suite, and then right next door there was a, another warehouse that had a big roll-up door, and the, the answering service was housed in there. And there was also a giant cooler where we, we kept dead bodies. Now, I know that I did, like on a day-to-day -day basis, all this really deathy stuff, but I did not touch dead bodies. I was completely terrified of them, horribly. I didn't even look at them if I could help it at all, let alone touch them. If I was in the answering service, for some reason or another, and a body happened to come in, I would run out as fast as I possibly could, because I knew that that body might just jump up and not be dead anymore and get me. <laughs> and, and so my coworkers, they would totally make fun of me, but it, it didn't matter. It was as though my like, autonomic nervous system took over, and fear ruled over my desire to not be made fun of. And so because of the responsibilities that I had taken on, I had to dispatch our drivers in the middle of the night. And I'm 
sure as you can imagine, there aren't just all kind of regular folks who like decide to do this <laughs> as a profession. There's a really ra wide range of like these fringe people who don't really fit in anywhere else, and then to the like really strange ones that are super into death. Um, I was not that person. Remember, I wasn't fascinated by death at all. I simply needed a job. So now one night we were really, really busy and the crew that we had at the time was pretty shoddy and unreliable. We had this woman, Chris, who was this middle-aged lesbian. She had this really great gray mullet and she, she drove this lifted truck and she would say things like, suck my dick. And she was just, she had this really rough exterior, but a, but a kind heart, but she, she just didn't get along with the other drivers very well. Uh, like, like Bob Salerno, who had this big gray handlebar mustache and a beer belly and this really controlling, puffed out, bombastic personality. And he, he and Chris did not get along. Uh, he didn't hold back from letting her know that how he felt about her lifestyle. So on this particular night, we had been really busy, and I don't think any of our drivers had slept in, like, days. Um, they worked on a rotation of 24 hours on call for five days, and I got this call in the middle of the night from the coroner's office. It was a, a suicide in an apartment in a, a rough area of town on the west side. It was a young guy, and his family was waiting there at the scene, and so we needed to get him out of there as soon as possible. So I tried to call on my drivers, four of which were on other calls that were taking a really long time. And the other two that I had left were Bob and Chris. So I called Chris and I told her that she'd have to work with Bob. And she said, no. Nope, I'm not doing it. He's too bossy. He treats me like shit. He ain't my daddy. He don't sign my paycheck. And we ain't fucking and I'm not doing it. No way. So I told her I would see what I could do. I called everyone, even the people who weren't working there that night. There was no one else. No one would answer the phone, so I called her back. And, Chris, what do you want me to do? There's no one else. She said, girl, get your suit. Come and do it with me, because I'm not doing it with him. By this time, the coroner had already called back asking, when are you going to be here? So I did. I put on a suit. I put on a black and white suit, and that was our uniform so that we were nondescript and we didn't offend anyone, and everything in me was screaming, no, you cannot and will not do this. No, absolutely not. But I got in my car at 1 a.m., and I drove the 10 minutes to my office to pick up a van, and I got into a big, white, unmarked panel van, and I took it to the scene, and the whole way there, I'm, like, chain-smoking cigarettes, and I'm telling myself that I could do it, and meanwhile, my heart is racing, and my palms are sweating, and my entire body is screaming, no, no. So I pulled up to the apartment and I tried to give myself this little pep talk about how, how strong I was and all the things that I had seen and been through and that no matter what, I had to keep it together professionally. Not only was I Chris's supervisor, but the coroner had been talking me on, to me on the phone for the last nine months and I was a professional and I could not lose it. And when I saw Chris, she waved at me, she gave me this big smile and she came up to the van and she said, Girl, you look scared. Get out of the van. 
she asked me if I was making, if she was making my life difficult, and I, I, I agreed that in, indeed she was. <laughs> so I got out of the van, and she told me to pull my gurney out, and that if we were going to do this, we were going to do it right. And she showed me the ropes. And I stuffed a pair of gloves into my back pocket, not knowing that these things would give me more courage than anything else soon. She told me to grab a flat white sheet and a body bag. And as we approached the stairs, I thought that we would bring the gurney up with us, but Chris told me that I was crazy and that we wouldn't want to carry the extra 60 pounds down the stairs and told me to leave it. And as I walked up the stairs to greet the coroner, Bob Bryan, complete terror came over my whole body. Bob was this sort of spindly little little man with a sick and really wry sense of humor. I think something that comes with being in that industry for so long, you just can't carry around the weight of every death that you encounter. And he shook my hand, and he was really happy to meet me in person. And he obviously had no idea that I had never done this before. So he led us down the hallway to a bedroom in the back of the apartment where a TV was left flickering on. And as I walked in, I saw this big man seemingly sleeping except for the black plastic bag that was over his face. You know, the kind that that you might get from a party store. And I noticed these tiny little bits of lividity that had started to settle into his fingertips and, and fear ran up my spine and I could feel my eyes dilate as I realized that there was just no way out of this. And I was struck at how much a person must have really wanted to die to not rip the bag off of their own face instinctually. And I was also appalled at how stark and raw the scene was. I guess in my mind, I hoped that they would get it really pretty for us before we got there. Um, But I was really sorely mistaken. So I looked to Chris for direction, and she passed me a confident smile and said, put your gloves on, sweetheart, it's going to be fine. She then went into a series of instructions about how we would go about moving this guy out of the house. And soon, it became apparent to me that this person would become the subject of a sort of morbid game of Tetris. How to get a person of a certain size and dimension out of a space without hurting ourselves or him. And when I touched his cold ankles for the first time to lift him, it startled me and I jerked as though I had just been burned and I somehow managed to breathe and maintain my composure. We did the work of carrying his body out of that apartment, creating a sling with the sheet, being careful not to hit his head on the cement stairs on the way down to the gurney. We strapped him in and Chris showed me the way that you can use your own momentum to pull the handles and collapse the gurney at just the right time to push the 230-pound man plus the 60-pound gurney into the van and then secure the posts and the cups on the floorboards so that he wouldn't move around while I was driving. He, He had become cargo. And the drive to the coroner's office was this mix of pure elation and pride for having overcome this huge fear and this really deep sadness for his family, for him. And I... I couldn't help come back to the amount of pain that one must be in to fight against our own innate desire to save our lives. And I drove to the coroner's office, and I wheeled the gurney in, and the tech took the body and gave me a receipt, and that was that, and it was over. And that night was the beginning of six years of me working in the funeral industry. It got easier. The scenes got more gruesome, but I stopped being afraid. 
And as my own fear subsided, I was able to see that the real courage came from the people that were left behind. Those that had exactly 30 seconds whether they, to decide whether or not they trusted me enough to let me take their loved one away. The real courage was the mothers giving up their children and the widower who allowed me to take their spouse away that they had been with for 50 years, knowing they wouldn't wake up with them there in the morning. In the next story, Daniel Stewart has mixed feelings about helping his family with tenant evictions. So when I was growing up, I lived in a very uh, sort of a pretty humorless household. Like there was no, uh, there was very rarely laughter or, you know, music if it wasn't related to church, that sort of thing. And to understand this, you need to understand that my parents were serious in part because of the circumstances of their lives. I mean, as, as a lot of you know, my, my mother grew up and she, you know, she grew up in the midst of a war where a lot of bad things happened. Uh, my father was a cop who, who gave me little nuggets of wisdom like, never shoot to wound, never shoot somebody unless you want him dead. Um, and, and he was, you know, he, had, he, was raised, he was raised and maintained, and maintains to this day, and this sort of the fire and brimstone evangelical religion. But to really understand why the mood of the household, you need, under, need to understand that my parents owned and rented property. They were, in other words, landlords. Uh, to understand what it means to be a landlord, I can just mention that I went to school with this guy named Pat. He was a few years younger than me, so I didn't know him well, but we worked together on the school paper. You know, he was sort of you know, Irish, ruddy-cheeked. And when he was in his 20s, uh, Pat moved into one of my parents' apartments, which things were going great. They talked about me, you know, when they saw each other. Things were great until he stopped paying his rent. So after he'd cost my parents almost $2,000, they gave him notice to vacate the premises. He was evicted. You know, an, an eviction, for those of you who, I hope most of you don't know personally what an eviction is, but it means essentially that for whatever reason, the person who owns the property goes to court, says that you, you may no longer live there. You know, there are several court proceedings, and at the end, there is a date in which the person in the property must move out or else. So <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't really... My, my, I didn't want to share this view of the world. So when I you know, got old enough to leave home, I went off to study the humanities. Now, the humanities are, you know, come from humanism, which was this renaissance idea built up largely in uh, distinction and contrast to religion, which is that we're not born you know, as children of Adam, so we're not born damned. There is, we have reason. I mean, it's not, we're... we're imperfect, but we have the ability, using our reason, to make ourselves a little bit better. So it is ultimately an optimistic view of life. But of course I couldn't leave my parents' view, worldview behind because of course I couldn't leave my parents behind. So a good number of years ago when I was visiting them, my mother asked me, <clears throat> we have to evict somebody. Will you come and help us move her out? Like, no, I do not want to do that. I am like, did I, did I mention the humanities? I'm like, on the side, I'm on the side of people here. 
You know, I don't want to, like, this single African-American woman, do I really want to go and put her out of her home? Like, when you evict somebody, the or else is that you show up with a court order and a marshal, and you go into the property, and you pick up all of their possessions, and you move them, and you leave them on the street. You change the lock, and you lock the door. You put somebody out on the street. But, you know, my mother's like 5'1", 115 pounds. She was going to go and do all the work. You know, my dad, she actually works harder than my dad, who's, you know, this big, 250 pounds. So I was not going to leave them without help. So reluctantly, I said, yes, I'll go. I didn't know what to expect when I arrived, but what I found was still somehow different than what I expected. She was there. You know, a woman probably in her maybe early to mid-30s, professionally dressed, uh, totally impassive. I couldn't, I couldn't tell at all what she felt. She was just there. And when we walked into the apartment with, behind the marshal, she was entirely packed, ready to go. Everything very neatly packed, as a matter of fact, really well organized. And as we began to move things out, a moving truck pulled up. A moving truck. So as we're moving things out of the apartment, as we're carrying things out of the apartment, we're putting them on the curb where the movers pick them up and put them into the truck. Why didn't she call the movers the day before? This furniture we were lifting, this furniture is nicer than my parents' furniture. So we moved her all out. It was quick because she was so organized. It was in the truck, and then she was going. And I was just... I didn't know what had happened, really. So I asked my parents for more details. I had not really wanted to know more about going in. But it turned out that she had moved in about four months before, in the middle of a month, had paid for that month, the, the remainder of that month, and had never paid rent again. When my mother called to ask if she was ever considering paying rent, she yelled at my poor mother. She had forced my parents to give her housing until the, until the courts, the long lead time would force her out. And, you know, it made me angry because my parents did not own rental property because they always dreamed of being slumlords. The first place that they bought was actually near the apartment where we had lived shortly before. It was in the part of town that was all apartments on the other side of the main road was the part of, newer part of town with houses. Well, we lived in this two-bedroom apartment when my parents had been able to save enough money to be able to get it to pay $21,000 for this house, you know, a house that has clearly doubled in value since then. Um, they saved up. They borrowed, money from my, they borrowed money from my father's very reluctant mother to get enough for a down payment. And then they immediately began borrowing with an additional mortgage because my father was a cop. My mother worked in the kitchens in the local school district. If they, need, if they were going to have enough money to live where they could actually own their own house, they needed to do something else. And rental property was the way that they could borrow money to be able to do it. Well, when you, when you live as we did, owning a few rental properties where you don't really have enough money to do a lot of the things you need to do, it makes for a not very happy life um, one example was soon after they bought this four-unit townhouse, 
there was a heavy snow. This was north of Cincinnati, where it didn't snow heavily all that often, but it was a heavy snow, you know, one where it's around 30 degrees, so it was a lot of water content. So, yay, snow day. Well, the four of us in the family went over, and we spent, in my memory, it was six hours, which means it was probably four. But we spent the, the, basically the whole day shoveling snow to clear out this property because my parents could not afford snow removal or a snow blower. They could afford shovels. They couldn't afford a second phone line, a business line. So when the phone rang, which it did often, it was usually bad news. So to this day, I have an aversion to the, to the telephone. I have to sort of gear myself up to answer the phone because it's always something. I, I just have an instinctive reaction. It's going to be something bad. So after this one experience, which I had been so reluctant to help, I came out pissed because I felt like this woman, for whatever reason, had decided to screw over my parents. It was like that she was going to screw over the man. I was like, it's just my parents, you know? She just screwed over my parents for whatever reason. She'd made us act as her movers. I'd driven 700 miles to spend time with my parents, and I was moving this woman out of her house. So several years later, something quite similar happened. My mother, I'm visiting. My mother says, we have to move somebody out. Can you help? I'm not that reluctant now. Yeah, let's go get her. Let's go get it. Let's do this, you know? And we arrive with the marshal and the court order, open the doors, there's nobody there. It's a mess inside. It's a mess. You know, there's the closets are half cleaned out. Things are just laying all over the place. There's old computer equipment. There's just crap all over the place. Junky furniture. And so we start near the door, and we just start moving it out and putting it on the curb. You know, there's nobody there who, who's associated with the woman who, who lived there. And it's just like, this is just a grind. Let's just get this done with. Okay, we have enough of the, of the first floor cleaned out. Let's head upstairs. You know, I'm going to head upstairs and start working, working on the bedrooms. And I walk into one of the bedrooms at the top of the stairs. And there's bunk beds in there. Two bunk beds. And there's kids' toys. And there's, a, there's like a school photo, this framed school photo of this kid. It was like... This woman wasn't living there alone. This was, this was her son. Like, why, why, are his, why is his bed and his toys behind, left behind? What the hell is going on? And it made me realize this was not a woman who was trying to screw over my parents. This, was the, this is what happens when there's some sort of disaster. This is the wreckage after a disaster. Because... You know, the whole thing where I started with this, talking about the humanities. I mean, that, that word humanity, it's a tricky word because in one way, humanity just means all of us. It's sort of the more inclusive way of now of saying mankind. You know, the, we say the mass of humanity. And what we mean is every single person. But it also means the standard of care we use when we take care of each other. Humanitarian it also think, refers to the standard that we hold inside ourselves when we, to judge our own actions. When you do something, at the end of it, can you, can you say that you've respected and held on to your humanity? You see, when I tried to leave my parents' worldview behind, 
they thought, they think, still in the present tense, that we are all born damned. That, as my parents say, my, pa- my mother said this just a few, to me a few weeks ago, just in passing, people have always tried to steal from you. That's just the way people are. She's had enough experience with it. She was nine months pregnant in the hospital getting a checkup. She put her purse down with literally all of her money in the world beside her just to stretch her back for just a minute. She reached back down and was gone. Somebody stolen everything she had in the world from a pregnant woman at the hospital. Bad things have happened to my folks. But the thing is, it's not exactly alone to look, enough to look at the facts of what people do. We make sense of what people do. We never have enough information because we can look at what people do. We don't ever know why because we can't get inside people's heads or inside people's hearts. So when we decide, we we come up with a theory of why people do things. And that theory is based ultimately upon our notion of what human nature is. Are we, when we're children, are we born damned or are we born innocent? And it makes all the difference. I mean, I'm not arguing for a naive viewpoint. I mean, my car's locked. <laughs> you know, and people, people have stolen from me. People are going to do bad things to me. People do bad things. We do bad things to each other. But at the end, I feel like we do have to make a choice in how we react to these things. Do we believe that people are motivated primarily by fear and greed? Or do we believe that what people, that what people need in life, what they want in life most, is hope and love? People stole from my parents. They will continue to steal from my parents. At the end, though, I guess this is just my personal decision. I've realized that when people steal from me, when people take something from me, I still have a choice. I can't stop them after they've already done it. But I can decide that just because they steal something from me, I don't want to just hand over a part of my soul at the same time. So, thank you very much. Jennifer Strauss tells us of a time that the power of story was truly transformative for a boy who'd experienced trauma. So, besides storytelling, the second thing that I'm most passionate about in this life is brain science. And it might sound strange that brain science and storytelling could go together, but they really do. So before I tell you this hero's story tonight, I sort of want to set the stage with a little bit of brain science that will take us into this story. For generations of all time, the human brain has been hardwired, hardwired for story. We think, learn, and we visualize or imagine our futures in story form. Our brains crave a solid beginning, middle, and end. We are so hardwired for story that we want to know what the problem is and we want to know what the solution and the resolution is as well. Our human brains are hardwired for the hero's journey. 
our deepest and our most greatest desires come out in the hero's journey. Heroes have to take risks. Heroes have to slay their own dragons. And even though it might seem like a lonely journey to go to the darkest place of the soul, when a hero emerges successfully, they lift the entire community that they are in, and along with that, they understand their own truth better. The other part of brain science and neuroscience that really gets me going is the fact that neuroscientists have found recently that in our brains there's a nerve cell called a mirror neuron. And our mirror neurons will fire and wire whether we are experiencing something ourselves or listening to a story of someone else's experience. Our brains do not know the difference. So like all of our ancestors before us, we can sort of try on an experience, <laughs> mentally imagine that experience before we feel like we're going to dive into that experience ourselves. The other thing about mirror neurons is that's the very thing in human beings that allows us to have compassion or empathy when we hear another story. So I just want you to keep those things in mind if we enter into this hero's journey. Many years ago, I was hired by a small mid-Michigan rural elementary school to come and spend the entire week with the third, fourth, and fifth graders to help them tell their stories. Of course, the curriculum calls it personal narrative, but we know that when we help others tell their stories, much more happens than just curriculum. During the course of that week, I met with every classroom several times so that the students could start finding that turning point in their lives that they wanted to write about and tell about that week. In a fourth grade classroom, I was called over by a little boy whose name was Josh. And when I walked over, I saw a mop of curls on his head, a few freckles scattered across both cheeks, the longest eyelashes I had ever seen on top of very, very blue eyes that looked up at me and said, I'm not quite sure what my story's about. I got a little closer to him, and I looked at his plan, and I asked him, well, what do you think it's about? He said, well, I used to only be able to play hockey in the road, but now I can play hockey on a real ice rink. I got down a little closer, excited by his story, and I said, honey, that's great. What changed in your life so that you can play hockey on a real ice rink? And he looked up at me and said, my father committed suicide. Now I'm down on my knees and closer to him. And I said, honey, you realize that your story is not about hockey, right? He looked at me and said, yeah. I said, are you ready to tell this story? And he said, I need to. I helped him with a few of the details that he was working on in his plan, and then I left him alone. On Thursday of the weeks that I spend in schools, we always have an evening showcase so that all the students who worked hard on those stories during the week had a place to take the stage and share their stories with an audience. That afternoon, as we were planning who was going to tell that night, Josh came up to me and he said, can I come tonight? I don't really want to tell my story, but can I come and listen to the other stories? I understood why he may not have wanted to share his story. But I said, honey, that's great. It'll be wonderful for you to be there to listen to the stories that your classmates tell. They'll really appreciate that. 
The evening began with family members and teachers and community members coming into a huge gymnasium with those metal bleachers. And everyone took their place on the bleachers, and Josh came in with his mother, and they climbed all the way to the top of the bleachers and sat on the very top ones. Students shared their stories that night, wonderful stories. Some were funny, some were sad, some were disturbing. They were all appreciated by that community that was their audience. At the end of the night, I was going to get ready to close the night down when I looked up at the top of the bleachers, and Josh had his hand up. I said, is there going to be another story tonight? He shook his head. Are you reading it? Who's reading it? And he pointed to me. He came all the way down the bleachers with his story in his hands and handed it to me. And I started to read this story with so much incredible detail about his relationship with his father, the suicide that he walked into. The details of the colors of a plaid flannel shirt that his dad was wearing that night. And a journey that took him out of that event and into the life that he was living now. Three years later, his mother had remarried. They moved to a new town and a new house, and he could play hockey on a real ice rink. And I tell the students that they need to understand what the truth of their stories is, and they often end them, the stories with that truth. And Josh was... Your life can be bad, but it can get better again. After the show was over, his mom, of course, people crying in the audience, his mother's face is streaked with tears. I'm crying while I read this story. They come down out of the bleachers to say goodbye to me. He's got a great big smile on his face. He wraps his arms around me, gives me a great big hug, and says, thank you so much. And he danced out of the gymnasium and out to the playground to play. His mother, unable to really speak to me at that point, wrapped her arms around me and said, thank you. And she left. A week later, I got an email from Josh's mom. It said, I don't know who you are or where you came from, but Josh has been in therapy for three years since his father took his life. But he wasn't able to move on until he was able to write his story and have his story witnessed by his community and friends and family who really care about him, she said, I'm really happy to see my joyful little boy coming back to us. We love the hero's journey because it's familiar to us. We have to slay our own dragons or we end up slaying ourselves. Josh had the courage to tell and and express his hero's journey. And because of that, he was able to heal his life. But having his story witnessed and listened to by a community who cared for him, not only healed Josh, but lifted that entire community because every person listening to his story could see themselves mirrored in that story and they did a little bit of healing themselves. Thank you very much. <laughs> In our final story of the evening, I tell of the time that I was unexpectedly called upon to be a raptor chauffeur, and it showed me a few things about the impulse to help. We had reached that part of winter when it seemed like it would never not be winter. It was so gray 
and cold and the days so short. And on days like that, I have to work extra hard to care about humanity, to be a productive, let alone functional part of humanity. Because we were limping to the end of February. On that particular Friday night, I had decided to give in to the weather. I had to give myself a break from bracing myself while breaking my car. I needed a break from the multiple layers of socks and knitted things on my extremities and head. The people out there were just as weather grumpy as I. I decided to stay in. Naturally, the moment the sun went down, I resented that choice. <laughs> I wanted out. Even though I'd had good reason to opt to stay in, I was being a giant mope about it, and I was starting to annoy myself. So while picking at dinner and poking around Facebook, this status posted by Wings of Wonder, uh, Raptor Sanctuary and Empire, and shared by my friend Jen, appeared. Who wants to go for a drive? Wings of Wonder is in need of yet another Raptor chauffeur. The Raptor in need is a boxed hawk in the Williamsburg area just off Yuba Road. If you want to win the official title of Raptor chauffeur and all the associated bragging rights, please call. I made the call immediately. I couldn't think of a better reason to rally myself up and out. What better way to shake myself out of being a mope than to do something useful for someone, for something. And I'm the type who wants to help all the animals. I cry when I learn of the deaths of animals I've never met. Right now, I could do something to help an animal in need to keep it from becoming another statistic along with the other members of the petting zoo of the damned, which is my nickname for 131 in springtime. <laughs> On my way to pick up the hawk, it started to snow hard. I felt immediately wearied by it, but I would not be turning around. I wouldn't even be turning around for the thought I had next. On the phone, the sanctuary director had given me the instructions that the man who had found the hawk said, park on the street and then walk an eighth of a mile up the unplowed driveway and he will open the door a crack and hand me the box through the door. <laughs> it occurred to me then that nothing had been vetted about this man, <laughs> nor his sanity. <laughs> Perhaps I should have found it immediately more peculiar that he didn't opt to drive the hawk himself. And my mind went straight to that most terrifying Texas Chainsaw moment when Leatherface pulls Kurt into his uh, little workroom. <laughs> I imagined having to find out right quick if all my boxing lessons were enough that I could KO him before his sword hit my neck. I imagined the headline, area woman hacked to bits because she always wanted to help, lured by deranged man who pretended to have a bird. <laughs> but I had given up on my inclination to first assume the bad in people many, many years before that, and I had to have faith that that hawk was no ruse. Of course, it ended up that the man was no sociopath, just someone who wanted to help as much as I did. He decided to make it easier on me and actually was waiting for me in the street, box in hand. 
He showed me blurry photos of what was supposedly in the box, and he explained that the hawk, he'd Googled and decided it was a red-tailed hawk, hadn't moved from his back porch in quite some time, and he was afraid that the coyotes were going to start circling. I didn't ask how the hawk had gotten hurt or how he'd managed to get it into the box. As I drove off, I wished I had, but there was no time for chatting. Though we were building a narrative here, we three, the finder, the chauffeur, the savior, our priority was playing our part to get this hawk into the sky once more. But before that could happen, I had about an hour's drive to Empire, and I started to fret that I should be doing more than just driving. But how do you comfort an injured hawk in a box? With the radio off, his silence was that much louder. Was my passenger already gone? For my own peace of mind, I had to assume he was still alive. I started to talk. I told him, hang in there, except for the rodents. We all want you to live. <laughs> I described what we were driving past. Hey, Hawk, I live three blocks that way. And I told him the circumstances of how we ended up together in my car. I knew I was being ridiculous that this poor injured hawk, if he wasn't in shock and could hear my offers of comfort, it was just noise to him, a foreign language in the middle of a foreign mode of transport. But I didn't know what else to do except keep making noise. I began to sing. I wanted to sing songs to him about birds, but to make them relevant to him. I started with the unfortunately predictable Bobby Day song, but instead of rock and robin, tweet, 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 I sang injured raptor, ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> I moved on to change the lyrics to the Steve Miller band song, you know, fly like a raptor, but then that just seemed cruel. By the time we turned off Grandview onto 72, I was stumped. Bird songs, bird songs. Come on, Hawk, what am I forgetting? Wouldn't you think there'd be more songs about birds than what I've already done? So I moved on to turn to non-bird songs and change the lyrics. You are the raptor that I've always dreamed of. I knew it since I saw the Facebook status. You're in a box, but I'm going to get you to Empire. <laughs> and naturally, I believe in miracles. You're gonna live, you red-tailed hawk, you red-tailed hawk, you. <laughs> Once I'd made this transition into repurposing total dad songs, the thought occurred to me. You know, it seems like singing would be a great comfort, but I'm not a good singer and clearly not a good on-the-fly on rhymer. Was I adding more suffering to his injury? Was he in there thinking the equivalent of, oh my God, shut up. <laughs> and then my thoughts went back to the man who had put him in the box in the first place. Nobody had vetted, vetted his box building skills. I pictured the hawk in that box getting kind of ragey and finding a compromise in the seal and clawing and pecking and pulling at the tape until he could get into that front seat and claw my face off. <laughs> I pulled up the lock on my driver's side door, 
started checking 72 to make sure there was ample shoulder to pull off, just in case of emergency in the form that, indeed, this hawk cared not for oldies sung by me. As with any Walter Mitty moment, the narrative in my head was far more interesting than what was actually happening in my car. We just drove on, him continuing to be completely still, me squinting to read the street signs through the snow, until I broke the silence with an expletive when I thought we were lost, and I turned to him and I said, hey, Hawk, are we lost? We weren't lost, just had come upon the end of the side street where a narrow, winding dirt path continued on to our destination. After I parked, the sanctuary's director greeted me at the car and took the box into the rehabilitation building, and I went into her home where I had a wonderfully pleasant surprise. When Jen posted the sanctuary status, I didn't realize that she and her lovely wife, Elon, would in fact be at the sanctuary themselves. After the director had assessed the hawk's health, we four sat around the kitchen table, talking and laughing about life and love, drinking wine, eating hand-rolled sushi, followed by chunks of dark chocolate. We had a blast, and my piss-poor funk dissipated into the cold night. It was a reward that I ultimately feared was undeserved. The hawk, he didn't make it. The sprain to his left wing had been too severe for recovery, and he was to be euthanized. So even though I'd volunteered to do this because I wanted to help the hawk, it actually worked out that he helped me more than I helped him. I'd managed to keep it together until I left several hours later, but once I was in the car, I started crying for this bird. I had earned the promised right to brag that I had been a raptor chauffeur, but ultimately, I did not brag about it at all. I didn't get the associated bragging rights that I'd really wanted. I didn't get to tell Facebook and whoever else might care that being helpful makes things happen. But we need to disconnect ourselves from whether our efforts end up how we wanted them, from expecting our efforts to promise a happy ever after for everyone who's involved. It's all too easy to assume that we only make the world a better place just if the outcome is positive. But if we only do good when guaranteed a good outcome, would we ever do anything just because? Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Thank you.